Grace, peace, and mercy be upon you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Finish this sentence for me. If you can't beat them, hey, great. I think I remember Ronald McDonald saying that in one of the old McDonald Land commercials. Claire, Riley, you know who Ronald McDonald is? Okay. Do you know what McDonald Land is? Ah, you've never seen the commercials on TV for McDonald Land? I don't know if they still have those anymore. Probably not. I seem to remember Ronald McDonald saying that, but I can't remember what, what context it was in. It was like the Hamburglar was running around stealing stuff, and I, I just remember Ronald McDonald saying, hey, if you can't beat him, join him. But I know that that's not what McDonald's was trying to get out to the kids of America, right? It's not like, if you can't beat crime, you might as well join it. You know, I, I, I'm sure it wasn't that. We know Ronald McDonald wasn't the first one to say, if you can't beat him, join him. The origins of it are lost to the ages. But it probably came from some ancient war where someone said, if the enemy is too strong for you to defeat, then it's better to be on their side. A very practical way of thinking if you want to live, isn't it? But what about this phrase? Whoever is not against you is for you. Yeah. Who coined that one originally? Who knows? Not Ronald McDonald, I assure you. Jesus is perhaps the most famous person to say it. Maybe he came up with it. We have lots of context, though, into which he said it. The Apostle John tells Jesus he saw some guy he's never seen before in his life casting demons out in Jesus' name. Apparently, the disciples tried to stop this unknown disciple because he wasn't following them. He wasn't a member of the band of jolly disciples. And Jesus seems to cop this rather casual attitude towards the whole thing. Hey, if the guy isn't doing things that are going against what we're doing, he's for us. Leave him alone. A commentary about this verse in my Bible says, Jesus rebukes the disciples and admonishes them for poor attitudes towards discipleship and uh, squabbling over leadership of the, in the church. Hmm. I wonder if he'd say the same to us today. Order and organization in the church are important, yet we must not lose sight of why they exist, to dispense God's mercy to people. But let's get back to the text. Jesus has to verbally slap these guys around after some pretty heavy things had just happened. They had just seen Jesus transfigured on the hilltop the day before. And the next day, Jesus healed a young boy with a demon. Which reminds us of our text from last Sunday, doesn't it? With the man with many demons. But in this case, this young boy has only one demon. And it's the kind that seems to come and go. Or it goes into latency or something. Here's how the original text reads in the Greek. And look, a man from the crowd cried out saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. And look, a spirit seizes him and suddenly it cries out and convulses him with foam and only with difficulty does it go away from him, crushing him. 
See, it seems to leave the boy after a while and, and throws him to the ground when it does. But it's only one demon, and it doesn't speak to Jesus like the brigade of them did earlier with the man from Gerasa. But here's where the action gives us more context as to why the disciples are upset that there's some stranger out there casting these demons out from people. The father of this boy says to Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast the demon out of my son, but they weren't able to do it. You can imagine how the disciples felt. When they see some guy they don't know doing it successfully, they're upset. Not only that, but they've just had an argument with each other as to who is the greatest of them. Jesus also had just told them about his impending arrest, and they were afraid to ask him to clarify that for him because he was purposely keeping that knowledge from them for a later time. There's a lot of weird, mixed-up things happening leading up to Jesus saying, whoever is not against you is for you. It seems like a casual, nonchalant response to John's concern. Let the guy do this thing. Let him do his thing. Don't stop him just because he doesn't have the proper credentials. If he's not against us, he's for us. He seems to be teaching them that anyone doing this ministry in his name is unlikely to be saying anything bad about it, thereby increasing its credibility in people's eyes, and at the same time, battling the forces of darkness and healing people. It's not like this man is casting out demons while at the same time bad-mouthing Jesus and the disciples. That would be the same as Satan attacking himself. And I believe Jesus says somewhere else in Scripture, why would Satan divide his own house? He doesn't do that. It doesn't mean people should be doing ministry for their own glory. And it would appear the man in this text is not doing that. Otherwise, Jesus would have intervened or said to the, to, the, to the disciples, yeah, better go stop the guy. At the very least, we would expect Jesus to say, the guy is an imposter seeking his, own, seeking his own glory. Stay away from him. But he doesn't say any of that. Which means when you find a lay person in the church conducting a valid ministry where there's a need, they should not be stopped. Our church body recognizes this with baptism in cases of emergency. Did you know that you can baptize someone even if you're not an ordained minister? Did you know that? You can. If someone needs the saving grace of God now, and there's no pastor available, and you're not in a situation where you can get to a church or it'll take too long to get to one, you can baptize. You say the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and apply water to the person. You're not against Jesus and you're not saying bad things about Him. You're for Him. You have a ministry in this world. Not just me and my colleagues in the ministerium. We are a priesthood of believers. Now, Christian denominations through the times have taken this differently in practice, but we Lutherans practice 
congregational leadership. You lead the church in its affairs, right? But certain rights and practices have been set aside for the pastor to do, such as preaching and administering the Lord's Supper and baptizing during regular situations. But you can all visit your fellow Christian. You can bring the Word of God to them in any situation. You can comfort them with the good news of forgiveness and salvation. You can admonish them if their ways are bad and leading them away from Jesus. You can gently correct those who are in error about Scripture, the church, Jesus, whatever. You can pray with your fellow Christians and pray for them. You can cast out demons. Now, I've not known anyone to be in that situation. And I don't know if you have either. But try it with confidence in the Lord if you find yourself faced with that situation. I would think it would be an emergency, like baptizing someone before it's too late for them. This all shows us Jesus is for people more than he is for credentials, at least in this instance he is in, in Luke. And I think we can confidently say that he is in most cases. He came to die for people, not systems and policies and proper credentials. He is the system. He is the policy. He has the credentials. He was sent by his Father. I don't know if you're watching God's Favorite Idiot on TV. What channel is that on? Is that Netflix? Yeah. Right. Netflix series. I know there's a billion things you can watch these days, and so we're not all watching the same thing. God's Favorite Idiot is a silly comedy about, a, about the battle of good and evil that's going around, uh, going around us between the forces of God and Satan. And the theology is completely off. <laughs> it's off base, but it's got a funny script. And one of the things is there's this angel in heaven that's in charge of all the paperwork, and nothing will work right in the spiritual battle unless all the paperwork is properly filled out and filed. But that's not the case here in Luke. An unknown disciple is able to cast out demons without having to fill out the proper paperwork, so to speak. Jesus gives us an important tool here for spiritual discernment. We're not to discern people as much as discern the spirits and ideas. Casting demons from a person in Jesus' name, good or bad? Well, does it bring healing? Good. Does it bring restoration to the possessed? Good. Does it glorify God? Yes. If it does not pass the spiritual discernment test, it may be a rebellion against God and therefore evil. Avoid it then. And this is why Christians avoid the spiritual world of witchcraft and ghosts and fortune telling and those kinds of things because they don't pass the spiritual test of discernment. Listen to how one of the early church bishops from Macedonia around the year 1155 puts it. If the so this is if you, if you think you have a spirit in you, right? If the spirit draws attention to itself and it encourages you to develop a relationship with it, enjoys your praise and thus leads you away from Jesus to glorify itself 
or to glorify yourself, it is a demon. Just tell it to go away in Jesus' name and it will flee. On the other hand, if the spirit prefers to be undetected, encourages you to develop a relationship with Jesus, gives him all the glory, and only made itself detectable because you were in dire distress, then it is an angel. I would add on to this church father that it is the Holy Spirit we receive from Jesus who does this work. Spirits who are not for Jesus are against him. The spirit who is for Jesus is the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't reveal multiple good spirits like opposites of demons. There is only one spirit from God, and he is the Holy Spirit, and he is good. Angels are messengers. So I think Theophylact from Macedonia was partly right, but he seems to have gotten the Holy Spirit and angels mixed up. But what about people? Are people who are not against Jesus for him? What do you think about that? That takes a little bit more time to think about, doesn't it? So someone doesn't believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he's come to save mankind from sin, death, and Satan, but he's not against the idea of Jesus or even the person of Jesus if he believes he was a man who even existed in the first place. Is he for Jesus then? Well, one would hope that he would eventually be for him in faith and letting the Holy Spirit conform his heart and actions to be more Christ-like. To just leave it at whoever isn't against Jesus is for him may be too ambivalent. And when we're talking about the only God and man who can forgive sin and grant everlasting life and righteousness and blessedness, well, you want to be for Jesus with certainty and decisiveness and the like. One thing is certain, Jesus is for people. He is for you. He bled, suffered, and died for you to clear all your debts against God and make you righteous in His sight as His dear child. Thanks be to God, we never have to say, if you can't beat Satan, join him. We don't have to say that. Because God beat him with the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. And so his victory is yours and mine. Amen.